<laughs> Don't deserve that. <laughs> Cody asked me to complete his series on the gospel, and he asked me to speak on Romans 12, verses 4 through 8 this morning. Last week, he covered the responsibility of our church to those who are outside the gospel, to witness, to lead, to guide, to show the glory, the power, the wonderfulness of Christ. Now I want to give the other side of that and the responsibility that we have to each other as a church. So last week was the external side of our responsibility to God. This morning is our internal side our responsibility to God. And so what I'd like to speak on is, in a very real sense, a recipe for a perfect church. A recipe for a perfect church. Now, Romans 12 is the turning point of the book of Romans. Back in one of Cody's early messages, he spoke on Romans 12, verse 1. And what I'd like to do is summarize where this passage is in the book of Romans. Paul wrote the epistle to Rome in 57 AD at the end of his third missionary journey when he was on his way to Jerusalem for that final time where he was arrested. At that time, Paul's goal was to go to the western half of the Roman Empire. He felt he had finished his mission to the eastern half of the Roman Empire, namely from Rome over to Jerusalem. He wanted to spend the rest of his life from Rome to Spain, and he wanted Rome to be his sponsoring church. Paul had never been to Rome before, and many people, especially the Jewish contingent in the Roman church, distrusted Paul because they felt he had betrayed his Jewish people and turned to the Gentiles. So Paul was writing the epistle to the Romans, To sum up his gospel, it was a letter of introduction that Paul was making of himself and his gospel to the church of Rome. Many have thought of Romans as Paul's systematic theology. And in a very real sense it is, it sums up Paul's theology. But really, what is summing up is the gospel itself. And so I'd like us to notice how Romans 12, 1, in a very real sense, tell us what it means and tell us why we should become a Christian. The first point that Paul makes, and really the major point in Romans 1 through 11, is one that none of us have a problem accepting, and that is we live in a sinful world. I don't need to have to say that too loudly, because all of you have either read a newspaper, watched television, or looked at the Internet news, and all you have to do is say the word sin, you think of what's going on in our world right now. Like, uh, just, you know, I'm from Chicago. We, we're, we're here for two weeks from Chicago. Chicago has been big news the last few weeks because it's now become, once again, the murder capital of the world. And I was just watching, I was checking up on uh, the news and the headlines. I bet you three or four different days while we've been here have been the young children who have been killed by gang members in Chicago. And there's just murder everywhere, hatred everywhere, sin everywhere. We are a sinful world, 
And in Romans 1 to 3, we are sinful people. We all participate in the sin of the world. We know that. We know how we deserve so very little. We all know down deep inside each of us, at least for ourselves, that we really don't deserve very much because we have, in a very real sense, lived for ourselves our whole life. And we have manipulated everyone to ourselves. Romans 6 tells us how sin is an invading army that's come into our lives in order to conquer us and to enslave us. And we are born in sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are born in sin. I don't need to state that because most of you either have had children or are in the midst of children. Nothing proves sin better than a small baby because they make sure the entire world is manipulated to their ends. You know, anytime a baby doesn't get what they want, they scream until they get what they want. And let's face it, they always get what they want. And in a very real sense, growing up to be an adult, and we all struggle with this, growing to be an adult is learning that other people deserve. That's a very hard lesson to learn, that other people deserve as well. And so in a very real sense, we understand sin. We also realize down deep inside how little we deserve God. If any of us were the God of this world, we would have destroyed it long ago. And I'm sure, you know, all of us say, we look at what we've done to this world. We look at how we are literally leading this world down. I'm scared to death what kind of a world I am giving to my grandchildren. If Christ does not return, we could well be in a new dark ages in the next 50 years. And I'm not sure there's much of an answer apart from God. We do not deserve anything but destruction. Yet we also have, Romans 3 through 5, the incredible truth that God realized that we could never, ever earn our own salvation. We could never earn our own salvation. We could never be good enough to deserve salvation. Therefore, God himself came down into this world, became one of us, in order that he could die on the cross as our substitute. Isn't that an incredible truth? God knew how little we deserve Anything, if we deserve anything, is to be absolutely annihilated. Yet God loved us enough to come down to bear our sins on his body on the cross. Jesus died as the atoning sacrifice, which means he died that we might be made one with God, that we may be made right before God. Christ died for us. Therefore, he has given us salvation and has given it to us, most incredibly of all, as a free gift. That all we have to do is turn our lives over to him. And we have eternal life. Now, we have the greatest gift that this world could ever know. Eternal life, eternal joy, heaven as our future. That's the gospel. Therefore, Paul begins Romans 12 with that truth. He says in verse 1, on the basis, you know, I exhort you, therefore, by the mercies of God. We have experienced God's unbelievable mercy. The key is then, since God has shown his great mercy to us, since he has given to us salvation, since he has caused us to, in a very sense, be born again, the word of John and the word of 1 Peter, which really means that we are now born into an eternal family. We've been born the first time into an earthly family. 
Now we are born into an eternal family, and God is our Father, and we are children of the kingdom. So from that mercy then, we basically, Paul is asking, what should we then do? What we should do is verses 1 and 2, the basis for what I want us to look at over this next little while. And verses 1 and 2 tell us, on the basis of God's mercies, we must offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, the word body means our total self. It doesn't just mean our physical body. It means everything that we are, we then offer, we give over to God. In a sense, the picture, of course, from the sacrifice of the Old Testament is we lay our necks on the altar of God. We bear ourselves to him that we might give ourselves over to him as he gave himself over to us. And then when we do so, how do we do it? Verse 1 tells what? That we're to offer our total self as a living sacrifice. Verse 2 tells how. The first thing is not by conforming ourselves to this world, which means not allowing the world to squeeze us into its mold. In other words, we come to God not the world's way. We come to God God's way. We cannot come to God the way, you know, in other words, we cannot buy our salvation. We cannot earn our salvation by good works. We cannot bring into our own selves by our own strength, by our own goodness, we cannot bring eternal life into ourselves. Therefore, we must stop living by the world's standards. That's Paul's point there in verse 2. And then the key verse for what I want us to look at, the last half of verse 2. How do we do it? We stop conforming ourselves. That is, we stop following the external mold. And then we have this inner transformation. We give ourselves over to be transformed by the Holy Spirit who transforms us, which means who changes us totally, who keeps on changing us. How? And then the key phrase, by the renewing of our minds. God gives us a new mindset. He gives us an entire newness of outlook where suddenly we realize that we can finally come to peace in our hearts and in our lives. Now think about that. If we live in the world for the world, we are going to be characterized by the chaos of the world where nothing will ever satisfy, nothing will ever bring lasting joy, nothing will ever bring us true peace and tranquility of soul. But God does that because God gives us this whole new mind. And from that mind then, we then discover that the will of God works. That the will of God is perfect for us. That the word of God pleases us. That the word of God is best. That God has given us life. And God has given us a life to live that really matters and makes a difference. And then produces that joy, that peace, that, that sense of, uh, of completion that we could never have any other way. All right, now, that is the basis, then, for what we want to look at this morning, then. What does the life of the church look like? Let's read verses, four through eight, or verses 3 through 8, rather. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us, 
has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If your gift is prophesying, then use it in proportion to the faith. If your gift is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, then encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, give generously. If it is leading in leadership, then govern diligently. And finally, if it is showing mercy, then do it cheerfully. In these five verses, we have three keys to a perfect church. Three things that we need to realize. The first thing that we need to realize is the importance of a proper attitude towards ourselves in the church. That's verse 3. Now notice how this builds again on the renewing of the mind. So if we have a renewed mind, then we will not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. This is the basic human problem. We know the word. It's that five-letter word called pride. All of us have pride. Every one of us in our basic, in who we are, always think of ourselves more highly than we should. That is, we want to be noticed. We always, you know, in a sense, live for ourselves. And it's very easy to think of ourselves as more important than anyone around. In a real sense, you know, that's the, the, the golden rule of the world. The golden rule of the world is do unto others before they get a chance to do it unto you. Isn't that correct? That's exactly what we see out there. Get them first so that they can't get you. And everybody basically, you know, lives for ourselves. That's all of us in our basic self, our thinking of ourselves, trying to manipulate others and and getting what we want. And I remember a book that was written about 20 years ago. It was really about the American lifestyle it was called The Narcissistic American. Remember Narcissist. Narcissist was the, was the person who worshipped his own image in the pool. And all of us are at heart narcissistic people. And involved in all this, then the whole book is trying to say that we can never have a true, in a sense, democracy. We can never have a true nation until we start to care for each other until we start to live for others instead of making everybody else live for us. The heart of being a church is to be a church that constantly gives rather than takes. That is the basic problem. It's very difficult to learn to give and to overcome our constant desire to take. You know, it's basically the American way is to take and take and take and take. Actually, I think it was just this morning I saw a little blurb on the Internet which has talked about uh, the unbelievable amount of stuff the average American has in their home. Now, we don't realize that until we move. Anybody moved recently? You, it's just hard to even fathom how much junk is in our homes. Uh, I, I'll even tell you, now, Cody would never, ever accept this, but I did that with books once. Because we are, we are moving from, uh, well, I taught in Winnipeg. We began our, 
or teaching time, teaching in Winnipeg for three years. Then I came back to Trinity in Chicago. And I, like all of my own ilk, I'm a bibliophile. Absolutely love books. I had piles and piles of books. But in moving, then you got to make a choice. How many boxes do you want to fill? You know, how much of a one truck do you want to fill up with boxes? I went through all of my books. And this is just after being in seminary and doing PhD and then teaching for three years. And I, I asked myself, how many of these books have I not used for the last five years? And how many of these am I pretty sure I'm not going to use in the next five years? And I sold them. I sold 300 books. That's how many I had that I had. And, you know, I just love books. And so you just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Uh, another example of that is a friend of ours who, uh, now I never saw this, but one of their friends, they, in their garage, they actually had, um, um, come on, mind. Ah, they had about six or seven microwaves lined up in their garage. And it turned out that every new thing that came out, they had to have. So they buy the newest microwave. This is just microwave with the newest little gadget on it. And they, put the, and they, had, they had, over the last, I don't know, six, maybe five or six years, they had bought about seven different microwaves. That was absolutely stupid. You know, what do you think? Just always you got to have the latest new gadget. But in a sense, so when you say it and you say that is really stupid, then you start looking at all the stuff that we have in our houses. And how much have we bought that we need like we need a hole in the head? But it's the latest thing and it looks good. So at any rate, the, the point is we've got to quit thinking of ourselves and start thinking of us. Notice how Paul puts it. He says you need to think soberly, which means carefully, which means with great discipline. Think about your true place in the community of God. And then Paul adds, which leads into what we're going to be talking about, In the rest of our message, he says, by the proportion of faith that God has given you. Now, the key is God has measured to us, the actual literal translation, God has measured to us a measure of faith. Now, what that means is not that God has given some of you more faith than others. Actually, this whole issue about faith leads to what we're going to be seeing next is spiritual gifts. When you think about yourself with humility, you realize that you have a lot that the church needs. And God has given each and every one of us certain incredible gifts and abilities that the church desperately needs. But before we do that, we have got to start thinking of the others in the church rather than ourselves. And then come to a place where we realize that God has given us and made us to be the kind of people he wants us to be. And then given us a measure of faith, which means God has apportioned to us those abilities, those gifts, those things in our personality and in our personhood that can immensely help others. And then he's given, he's apportioned that. That's the whole aspect of the measure of faith is God has apportioned faith to each of us so that we can use our abilities and our gifts to serve. See, behind that then is the doctrine of spiritual gifts, and that's what I want to turn to secondly. After we have the proper attitude, then we need to gain the proper understanding of our place in the church. And here in two verses, Paul sums up the doctrine of spiritual gifts. 
And he says it incredibly succinctly. Think of Romans 12, 4 and 5 as the Reader's Digest version of 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses an entire chapter to teach about spiritual gifts. Here he sums it up in two verses. Now, another thing to understand interestingly is that Paul wrote Romans about the same time he wrote 2 Corinthians, and he had just written 1 Corinthians a few months earlier. In other words, Paul had written 1 Corinthians probably maybe five or six months just before he wrote Romans. So Paul is thinking about that as he summed up. He says, how can I put all that I said on spiritual gifts into a couple of verses? And that's what he does. So our understanding is severalfold. Number one, notice what it says in verse four. Paul is using a wonderful illustration here. He's using the illustration of your own body. That then becomes an illustration, an analogy for the church as the body of Christ. We are a body. And then he says in verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members. We know that. We look in a mirror. We understand we have, you know, hair, nose, mouth, hands, heart, lungs, etc. Many, many different, many different parts of our body that come together to form one single person. Just a sidelight on that, when you look at this body, I, you really have to say, this could not have come by chance. There must be a God. How could there be, in a very real sense, this perfect thing? I remember when Amber was born. And I, uh, I remember how excited I was. Now, we had been married nine and a half years, and we had, we had actually seriously wondered if we could have children. And we actually had, had uh, put in for adoption, and we were going to adopt. And actually, we would have had a baby two days before I was born. But the, the main, my main point is not that. My main point is that when I saw this perfect baby come, that, in a sense, Nancy and I had formed. I don't see how anybody could walk out of the birth of a baby and not realize there must be a God. To me, our body is perfect proof that there has to be a creator God who gave us this, this incredibly perfect instrument. Now, we all understand, too, now that I'm, I just turned 70 yesterday, I now know my body is definitely not perfect. <laughs> it has let me down again and again. My basic principle of life at my age is my body hates me. <laughs> it's getting even for all those midnight pizzas when I was 20 years old. But at any rate, the thing is, though, the body itself, though, is this unbelievable freaking perfect instrument. But see, the perfect instrument of our human body then becomes a model for the perfect church. And what does it mean? Verse 5 is what it means. In the same way that our human body has many members but forms one body and works together, so in Christ we form one body. We are the church here. Uh, But the key is each of our members have different functions just like the human body. And we together, as we work together, we form one body. 
Now, with that in mind, I'd like us to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. I'd like like us to look at that a little bit more to get into this. What does it mean? What is this whole issue of spiritual gifts and what is its place and what our church should be and can experience? Paul begins with this whole issue of unity coming out of difference. Now, the key to it all is verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but there's the same spirit. There are many different spiritual gifts, but behind all of these different spiritual gifts is the same spirit, and then in verse 6, the same God who works all in all. So we have God behind our spiritual gifts. Therefore, verse 7, to each one of us, to you, to me, to each of us, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Very important issue. First of all, the Spirit controls the gifts. But then the Spirit controls the gifts for the sake of the church as a whole. See, and that leads us then to verse 11 here, which is the key verse. All of this, this whole issue of the fact that you have certain spiritual gifts... I have other gifts. Each of us have these. All of this, all of this issue of spiritual gifts is the work of the one and the same Spirit. And then the key, the Spirit gives the gifts to each one of us as He determines. In other words, God has decided, first of all, to place us in this body here. And in order that this body can function together as a whole... He's given every one of us different spiritual gifts so that in these different spiritual gifts, we can all use each of us our spiritual gifts for the benefit of each other. Now, notice several aspects of this doctrine of spiritual gifts. First of all, again, the Spirit is in control. God decides what gifts you are to have. God decides what gifts each and every one of us are to have. And then places us where we can share our gifts with each other. So you see, first of all, the Spirit controls these gifts. The second thing is every single one of us have spiritual gifts. Every single one of us. Then the purpose of God in giving to each of us these different gifts is that we then need each other. The church works through fellowship, and through interdependence. That is, we fellowship with each other, we share, we become first a church, which the word church, by the way, means an assembly of people who meet for a common purpose. But then the church slash assembly must become a community where we begin to bond together and to enjoy each other. But then the community must become a family where we learn to love each other and to share all things. And as the assembly becomes a community and the community segues into a family, then we want to share and we learn to depend upon each other. I need your gifts as much as you need mine. But see, the important thing is you may not think you have gifts that are that worthwhile, but number one, God has given you the very gifts he wants you to have. This is a very important aspect of what we call the doctrine of creation. 
most of us have a certain attitude in terms of God creating us. We look in a mirror, we look at our life, and we say, okay, God really did an incredible work when he made Abraham and David and Paul and Aquinas and Calvin and Billy Graham and on and on and on. But then God wanted to have a little fun and to play a practical joke, and he made me. He said, I worked really hard, so now I'm just going to have a little fun. Absolutely wrong. God made you perfectly as an act of love. And he made you with the same care with which he made Abraham and David and Paul. In other words, each one of us are God's perfect work. And he's given to us exactly those gifts he wants us to have. But see, the next thing is, spiritual gifts should never produce status. They should produce ministry. See, they produce status when we think of ourselves more highly than we should, verse 3 again. When we think of ourselves correctly, then we realize that God has given us certain things that can enhance the people around us. He has made you exactly as he wishes And I really believe he's given in each and every one of our lives what we might call seeds of greatness. That every one of us have a potential to enhance those around us. Providing we are willing to accept the gifts that God has given to us, to accept the measure of faith in a sense, which also means the amount of ability that God has given us, that we can use it for each other. And... God not only gives each of his spiritual gifts, he gives some, in some you might say, greater gifts than others. Now, by that, by that I mean, let me just use, because my parents were both professional musicians, so I'll use music on that. Um, I was born in New York City because my parents were both in the music scene in New York City back in the late 30s, early 40s. And my father played with every famous orchestra you've ever heard of back in the 30s. And my mother was an incredible organist, pianist, and accordionist. But she was, she was incredibly good. When she graduated from Indiana University, they asked her to stay on and be a member of the faculty. She said no, she wanted to go to the music scene, so she went to New York City, which I'm glad for, because if she had stayed in Indiana, I would never have been born. But at any rate, the point is, though, she was an incredible, you know, good enough to be a professional, but she wasn't a concert pianist. She was unbelievable as an organist and so on, but she was never a concert pianist. And I was incredibly good, but not the absolute best. See, that's the problem of the world we live in. Because we always think that if God has given us ability, that he hasn't given us enough. See, the key is, God has given us exactly how much ability he wants us to have. And he wants us to use that ability to glorify him. And none of us are ever going to be the best in the world. But we are the best that we can be. And that is more than enough. So we've we've got to stop thinking ourselves. The flip side of verse 3 is to think too lowly of ourselves. To think we have nothing to offer. The doctrine of spiritual gifts and the doctrine of creation really are saying you are precious to God and he made you exactly the way he wants you to be. And he's given you exactly the gifts he wants you to have. And exactly in a sense you might even say the amount of that gift. Which I think is connected with the measure of faith. 
But he wants us each to use those gifts to benefit those around us. And as we come together, we then learn to do that and we learn to care, we learn to share, we learn to love, and we learn to let God take the gifts that we have and use them. And in that, I'm not going to read through it all, but sometime, just look at verses 14 to 26 of 1 Corinthians 12. It basically talks about don't ever think that one gift is better than another gift. All of us would love to be the eye. The eye of the church, you might say, is the leadership of the church that provides the vision for the church. And we'd all love to be eyes. Or for myself, for instance, my gift is primarily the mouth. I would be the mouth of the church. I have the gift of gab. I've had it since I was a kid. Teaching, preaching has always come very easily for me. But the church can't move forward with just an eye or just a mouth or with just a hand. You know, if, if, if I was just a hand, I could maybe, well, it would be hard for me. I'd rather be a foot if I'm going to walk to where I am. The point is, what Paul is saying here is, no one gift is enough. We can't all be eyes, and it's a good thing we're not. We can't all be mouths. We can't all be hands. What we can do, and I'm going to be bringing that out in the last part of our message, in verses 6 to 8, we can use those gifts that each of us have to benefit the body of Christ. And with that in mind, let's look then at the third point of a recipe for a perfect church, which is the proper use of our gifts. We have a proper attitude, a proper understanding. Now we need a proper use of our gifts for the body of Christ. Now, Paul lists seven gifts here. Important to realize that none of Paul's lifts are exhaustive. I've seen some books on spiritual gifts that, you know, say, well, music is not a spiritual gift because it's not listed. Wrong. Music comes under the gift of speech, the gift of the voice. And since in these seven different representative gifts that Paul's giving us here, and the reason for seven, I think, is obvious. Paul wants us to get a perfect number. Seven is the perfect number in Scripture. So since Paul gives us seven of them to identify the kind of gifts that form the perfect church. There are three categories I'd like us to notice here, and I'll talk about them briefly. Basically, first of all, we have gifts of speech. Three of them are gifts of speech here. Prophecy, teaching, and encouraging. All are gifts of speech. And listen, let me talk briefly about each one in turn. Prophecy is a difficult one. Very debated, obviously, in terms of what it means and how it relates to preaching today, and is there a gift of prophecy? I believe there is a gift of prophecy, and basically in the New Testament, you know, prophecy, saying the list of Acts 4 was second, of apostles, prophets. So prophecy was a very important gift to Paul. He names it in all of his lists. Prophecy is not preaching. Preaching is separate. In Ephesians 4.11, it's apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers. So prophecy is separate from the pastor-teacher. A prophet is one like Agabus, or actually the daughters of Philip in the book of Acts. Prophets were those who gave specific messages from God for the church. And they were special messages for the situation of the church at that time. 
Paul uses it also gener- uh, more broadly. We're probably saying, I think here it's, it's a representative gift. So I think it's not just the actual prophet like Agabus. And by the way, let me also add here that I'm not going to dwell on it because that's not the purpose. I think prophecy is a gift for today. Now, there's this huge debate over the supernatural gifts. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, and so on. And there are some people thinking, I hope I'm not trampling anybody's feet here. I can say it because I don't know where you stand, so I can say it innocently. I personally can't see much of an argument for saying that the supernatural gifts have ceased. I do not see that in the New Testament. I think God still uses them. And, but the key is this, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. The Spirit gives the gifts to those whom he wishes. So therefore, tongues and prophecy are a gift that the Spirit could give any of us, but he will give it to us if he chooses to give it to us. And see, that's a very important thing in itself. But anyway, the point is, these gifts are for today. But the key is the Spirit controls them all. He decides who will have what gifts. So prophecy in this category of Romans 12, I think is more broadly of, in a sense, Spirit-inspired sayings. In that case, Paul probably would include preaching in prophecy here. It's the Spirit leading people to say. And in a sense, giving prophetic boldness. And in that sense, Pastor Cody has prophetic boldness. Now, I don't have to say that more than once. We all realize that. He has definitely a, a prophetic boldness about his preaching. And the key is when you do that, notice what Paul says, you must do it on the basis of that measure of faith, the proportion of faith that God has given. In other words, God has called each one to certain ministries. And Paul is simply saying, if God has called you to be a preacher, to be, and then the second gift here, a teacher, then you must give yourself totally over to that gift and let the Spirit use that. And so prophecy and teaching lead to that in the church that guides people into the truths of God, into the reality of what God has, what God has given, into Scripture, into the Word of God, to speak from God, to speak the truths of His Word, to do it boldly. See, that's prophecy and teaching. But then I want to I center upon encouraging, comforting. That's very important too. And that's not seen as much in the church. Many of us are hurting over all kinds of issues. We need people with the gift of encouragement, with an ability to come to us in the midst of our hurt, to envelop us in their arms, and to be there to comfort, to encourage, to lift us up when we are downtrodden. Because the one thing we all have in common is that we're going through trials. If we were to open it up today to say, okay, let's talk about the issue of trials, many of us will hold up our hands and say, you want to hear about trials? I can tell you about trials. How would you like me to give the trials I'm going through? Would you prefer them alphabetically or topically? I have a couple hundred of them, and I can share them in any order you would like. We are all going through trials. That's the one thing we all have in common. We're going through incredibly difficult times, 
And we're asking God, why, Lord? Well, we need people who can be there and who can love us in the midst of our hurt. People who can enable us to cry out like David did in Psalm 22 and Jesus did on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's actually a prayer. And it's not just Jesus on the cross. It was Paul who originally said it. I'm Paul. It was David who originally said it. And therefore, we feel like that often. Like God has somehow forgotten us. And we're going through so much. We are passing through the valley of the shadow of death. And we don't feel the presence of the shepherd. We need people who can do that for us. One of my favorite Reader's Digest stories is exactly, and it was a true story because I did read it in Reader's Digest. It was in the midst of a terrible thunderstorm with the lightning crashing in the middle of the night and a little five-year-old boy cries out, Daddy, Daddy, come. And his dad's a Sunday school teacher. He decides to give his son, he says, Son, you don't need me, you have Jesus. And the boy says in all of his earthly ways, he says, I know that, Daddy, but right now I need a Jesus with skin on. We all do. That's the gift of encouragement, is to be a Jesus with skin on. To be able to help us in the midst of our despair to feel the presence of God and to help us, and this to me is the key, to realize I'm not alone. I don't have to go through this by myself. There is somebody to envelop me in their arms as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And to help me to understand and re-experience the shepherd. See, that's why the gift of encouragement is so unbelievably important. Well, a second category of gifts, gifts of action. And there are two of these, and they relate to each other. Serving and leading. The gift of serving, I consider to be the single most important spiritual gift. The gift of serving basically means that we are constantly there to help. It's called in 1 Corinthians the gift of helps. I remember a woman in the first church that Nancy and I pastored. She was a woman who thought she didn't really have much to offer. She didn't really have many gifts. She just loved to cook and loved to help others. I can honestly say that she had a bigger impact upon the church and the community than anybody else in the church. She had a greater impact than all of the leaders put together because she had the gift of helps. And the gift of helps is a concrete example of the love of God in action. Serving is so desperately needed. People who will just be there to help others, to lift others up, just always giving of themselves. That is an unbelievable gift. Now then, the gift of leadership. Obviously, every church needs leaders. We all need those who can provide the vision, who can guide the life of the church. Absolutely important. But what we also need to understand is that the leaders themselves, it says, govern diligently, which means to govern with all the strength they have. And involved in this is to realize that those of us who are called to leadership are not called to status. Leadership is another kind of serving. It is serving at the aspect of the church that gives it the direction that it needs. And so diligence is needed, a willingness to give of themselves. Notice how the gift of serving 
And the gift of leadership both demand time. Both demand effort. Both demand energy. And here we understand, you'll notice spiritual gifts are not just the gift. Whenever we think of spiritual gifts, we're always thinking of the teaching, the singing, the leading, the things that put people up front. But actually, spiritual gifts, the most important spiritual gifts are like the internal gifts, the gift of prayer, the gift of faith, the gift of caring. Those are really the most important spiritual gifts. And therefore, God has given every one of us those things. Then the last category of spiritual gifts that all of us can have is giving, the gift of giving. And Paul says it two ways. First of all, he talks about contributing, but then he talks about showing mercy. Both of them are gifts of giving. And contributing, obviously, are those whom God has blessed financially, especially. And, and I think really the principle of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and of the rest of the New Testament is very, very clear. The more you have, the more you give. Behind this is actually an important aspect of the teaching of the New Testament, which I would call in a, uh, a, a, a spiritual theology of wealth. All of us have the same definition of wealth. Wealth is anybody who has more than I do. Same definition. Don't want to, you know, none of us want to admit, by the, by the standards of all of history and the standards of the world we live in, all of us are wealthy. But the key is, though, when God has blessed us to have a great deal, two aspects of a, of a biblical doctrine of wealth. First is what we might call the creation principle. God has given us this world to enjoy. And Ecclesiastes, it says, eat, drink, and be merry. I always thought of that as a negative thing, something that was a sin, and actually it's not. And Ecclesiastes is saying you're to enjoy the world that God has given you. You're supposed to have enjoyment. Therefore, when God has blessed us financially, he's given us a gift that we are to enjoy, but that's the lesser of the two doctrines. We are to enjoy what God has given us, but we are to do so in balance, and the main thing is, when God has blessed us financially, he's called us to a ministry of giving. Automatically. If God has blessed us financially, he expects us to use that gift to enhance, first to glorify him, then to enhance life, and then to help others. So therefore, God has called us in our wealth to a ministry of giving, to a ministry of caring for others. And I, I, I often think, actually, in terms of uh, those in ministry, I think of Rick Warren. Rick Warren has an unbelievable... He wrote, you know, the Purpose Driven books. Most of us have seen those. What you don't understand is that Rick Warren has become unbelievably wealthy. Rick Warren has earned a half a billion dollars off of those books. A half a billion dollars. Now, what has he done with it? First of all, he gave back to his church, which was called Saddleback Church. He gave back to his church every penny they'd ever paid him over the previous 25 years. He paid them back everything. And then now he lives on a reverse tithe, he calls it, which means he lives on 10% of the money and he gives 90% away. That's 
I think that's a great example of this. That, you know, the more we have, the more we should give away. God has called us. You see, that's what, and then involved in that is this issue of mercy. That we can then show the mercy of God that he has shown us to others by helping them. God has helped us spiritually. We can then help others materially. You know, that's in a sense this gift of giving. Main thing I, I want us to see in all of this is that God has called us, last week's message, to a ministry in the community to reach out to others, to bring the gospel, the incredible, wondrous gospel of God to those who do not know him. But secondly, though, he's called us internally to be a body of Christ. He's called us to unity, to fellowship, to sharing and caring, and to using all of our gifts for his glory and for the sake of the church. Let's pray.